0: Thank you. Thank you. How many people here have read this book? The
1: whole,
0: the whole thing? Ah, yes, one. How many people? Anyone else? Oh, you're going to get the prize. <laughs> um, that's terrific. It, it's actually not that difficult to do. You just start at the beginning and you work your way through to the end. <laughs> Sometimes we think it's daunting because we look at it like this, but if we go page by page, you'd be amazed at how fascinating it really was and how interesting it really was. It just might take a little while, but it's all—it's actually not that difficult to do. I've read it cover to cover four times, and probably most of the suttas a dozen times in haphazard orders. So it's um, actually not that difficult. I encourage you to tackle it. So, in that vein, we're going to start with four paragraphs. How many people have never read four paragraphs of the middle link discourses of the Buddha? Oh, I'm really glad I brought it in then. Good. Okay. When um, we often call the, the suttas is the term that's referred to as the discourses of the Buddha. And when we undertake sutta study or we look at the discourses of the Buddha, I think it's really important to look at them in a practice context so that we're not trying to understand them with our intellectual mind, but rather reflect upon them and see how they inform our practice. There are four suttas that have these four verses in them, number 131, 132, 133, and 134. So I want to say a few comments about these suttas and and read a bit of it, and read these four verses together. And the basic context of this sutta is the Buddha speaks this teaching. And then in the other suttas that come after the 131, the 132, 133, and 134, there are other recollections of this teaching, where, one, where somebody comes to another monk and says, do you remember the time the Buddha set, gave this teaching? And they say, nah, I don't remember it. Do you remember it? Nah, I don't remember it. We better go ask somebody else. So they go to a third person. Do you remember it? Nah, I don't remember it. Do you remember it? Yes, I remember it. And then they recite the verse. And I says, you should remember it. It's good to remember it. It's the fundamentals of the holy life. It's beneficial. You should remember it. And so then they go to the Buddha and they get the teachings. So they go to a senior monk and they get an exposition on, uh, a detailed exposition on what was meant by these four verses. Um, it it can kind of go on and on like that, but there's something about that encouragement to actually remember it that I want to pass on to you tonight. I hope that if you find this interesting, you will take this paper home and remember it. Set it to memory. Memorize it. It's only four verses. It's within your ability. So, I have found that by using this sutta, by setting it to memory, it comes to me at various times when I need it. I can recollect it and I can inspire myself through it. I can get access to the Buddhist teaching instantly by remembering these words. So um, that's why it's in your hand rather than my just saying these four verses with the hope that some of you will actually set it to memory and then enjoy it for many years to come. The title of this discourse is Bhattakarata Sutta. Now, there are lots of translations of what this Pali term means. I am not a Pali scholar, so I can't give you the nuances of it. I can just tell you what they are, and you can see the span of it. Um, In Bhikkhu Bodhi's first translation of the middle Link Discourses, um, he, he called it one fortunate attachment. In his second version, he called it a single excellent night. Bhikkhu calls his um, one auspicious day. There's another earlier translation, I believe it's the Polytech Society that calls it the auspicious. And there's one public one um, that comes out of Sri Lanka that calls it the The ideal... It's the ideal experience of solitude or seclusion. Very different translations. Very different. My, my current favorite is A Single Excellent Night. Although I kind of think an auspicious day would be just as fine. Um, in the... Um, in, in, in our calendar, using a solar calendar, we tend to say a day when we mean a 24-hour period. But at the time of the Buddha, they used a lunar calendar. So it was more common to say a night to mean a night and a day. So if we're going to say today, you know, we don't necessarily mean that that ends at dark. We sort of mean until tomorrow. And so that would be the usage of night, is to understand that it was used in a culture that was using the, the, the lunar calendar. I kind of like the translation of a single excellent day or night. Um, because to me, this is such a practical teaching that it's almost like saying, how was your day? And to actually consider whether our day was well spent, whether we had a good day. And I take this teaching to be that basic, that simple, and that useful, that ordinary. Um, I hope we can reflect upon this teaching as often as we ask somebody, how is your day? Which would mean probably most days. So let's launch in. What I'd like to do is to um, start right here. And then we'll just sort of kind of work our way around. Whoever is next to you, read the next line. So one person will read one line, one will read the next line, one will read the next, one will read the next. And just so that we hear a few voices. Please read loudly. And I'm going to interrupt, so don't be surprised if I interrupt right in the middle. Um, And then when I interrupt, that gives you the chance to ask questions and interrupt as well. Not just questions of things you don't understand, but notice if there's something that you find interesting. Or inspiring, or if there's something that touches you or resonates with you, or that you might find some contemporary example that just it makes sense with. The suttas are really of no use if it's just an intellectual um, experience or a conceptual understanding. Their real value is when we contemplate them and our lives are touched and they inform our practice, which means informing our experience of the Dhamma, our experience of life. That's great. Then just hand it to somebody either by your side or behind you, and then you're the next person to read. And if you don't want to read, hand it on. Like if you didn't bring your glasses or something. <laughs> okay, hand it to somebody, please. Oh, before we launch in, do you have any general questions about my brief instance intro to sutta study? No? Okay, good. <laughs> it's a huge topic. <laughs> Let me. Not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes. Thank you and for the past and then pass it on. Yeah, one or two. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. instead with insight let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it. Invincibly, unshakably. Today, today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hoarders away. But the one who dwells thus ardently, Relentlessly by day, by night. It is she, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's, um, would you read the beginning, the first, the first um, start at the beginning again. Let me not revive the past. Or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind. And the future has not been reached. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Okay. Let me not revive the past. How does one revive the past? That's an actual question. <laughs> Wasn't meant for deep contemplation. It was meant for a response. How does one revive the past? Huh. Um, replay the stories. Yes, replay the stories. Have you? Did anyone experience a replay of stories in the meditation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How else do you revive the past? the resentment, like anger, Yes, Hold, holding resentment, anger, grudges. Having a reaction that we hold to. By observing rituals. By observing rituals. Oh, so repeating uh, repeating patterns. Oh, Reviving the past through rituals. Interesting. So it's like a formulaic um, attachment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Please. Expecting the same outcome even though it's a different space and time and different person.
1: Ah, yes. <laughs> Yes.
0: Yes. How do you revive the past? Wanting what you had in the past. Wanting what you had in the past. Yes. Yes. I saw another hand. Um, Ken? When I filter my present experience through my experience of my past, (coughs) instead of just being with my experience in the present moment. Okay, great. Okay, please. I mean, that for, for a different outcome. Yes. Okay. Okay, good. We've got a lot going here. Okay, one more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's um it's rather a stretch of the imagination, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, let me not revive the past. Literally that's translated as let let one not run back to the past or chase after the past. And traditionally it's described as a way of recollecting the past that is infused with some of the words that you used of wanting the past to be different or of holding the past. We revive the past by, having, by bringing thoughts to the mind of past experiences, allowing those experiences to... I, I want to give you the exact words. Let me see. They have really cool words. This slightly traditional language, but uh, how does one revive the past? By thinking, my eye was thus in the past and forms were thus. My experience of seeing was thus in the past. And my consciousness becomes bound up with desire and lust for that. When the consciousness is bound up with desire and lust, one delights in that. When one delights in that, one revives the past being bound up by desire and lust, and through that bondage, experiencing a quality of gratification and delight that then excites us into further bondage, is the classic description of how one revives the past. And I think that may come through a more classic language, but it's not different from a more contemporary expression that was expressed here. Ways that we look to the past... But look at it through clinging. We look at it through wanting. And we let it, we try to take those bits that we want and recreate it again now. The next line is, or on the future, build my hopes. How do you build your hopes on the future? how do you build your hopes on the future? Please. One thing I think of is the, the very common phrase when something happens then I'll be happy. Ah, yes. Yes. <coughs> when something happens then I'll be happy. If only this happens then. Okay, so we're really hoping for a particular outcome to happen and resting our happiness upon that. Smita sacrificing the present moment for a return to the future. Mm, yes. Yes. Yeah. Expecting something particular, some benefit from the future, but maybe we're losing something right now. Yeah. Magical thinking. Magical thinking. There is an extraordinary quality of magical thinking. Do you want to say any more about what aspect you're... Yeah, this this is really important because so much of this is, and so much of this experience is all about the imagination, and the teachings. Imagining the past or imagining the future, and then considering our relationship to it. And in this in this in this line, building our hopes upon the future is describing a kind of a kind of construction of the future that has this quality of expectation or hope. That's one. That's one example of the sort of the impossible or mythic kind of illusion um, that when something, when something, um, but it could happen with anything. It could just be uh, tomorrow. I will. um, Please. Worrying about the future. Worrying about the future is just as much a hope in this context. We we wouldn't say the hope of. Of, of success, it would almost be the hope of failure or the expectation. One translation uses the hope, another translation uses the translation expectation. Both of them have a similar movement, one just is they're flavored slightly different in English. Yes, but I'm glad you brought that up because this isn't just for a a, a fantasy of a fantastic dream. We're really starting, this this is asking us to look at how do we construct the past and how do we construct the future. And that doesn't necessarily mean for pleasure or positive, it could just as well be anxiety or worry or um, fear that constructs the future. How do you rest your hopes upon the future, please? So a question. So is this saying um, that you? um, I guess it's planning. I mean, one way to look at it is a dream. I mean, my mother used to say you have to have a dream to have a dream come true. But also, you know, you make plans. for things I want for college. I want to have. I want to be self-sufficient. So these are the things that I need to do. Yeah. And so that is a form of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking here about a whole relationship to the future. One thing that's really helpful with Sutta study is to not come to the conclusion too quickly. Really mull over the little sentences and let it go slow because your mind is bright and it is reaching for a conclusion and wants to apply that. But we're only on the second line. <laughs> but if the second line is talking about future. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, Okay. fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. But let your mind, let your mind slow down to a pace 2,600 years ago. Okay? Because sometimes, sometimes our minds will just try to um, uh, resolve things or make them applicable just a little faster than than then actually is useful for the purposes of contemplation. I avoided your question, but I know we'll get to some of those issues later. Please. I'd just like to ask if we could use the wireless microphone. Oh, yeah, where did... Oh, please. It ended up... Okay. 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 Um, or on the future, build my hopes. The classic, the classic from the sutta's description is how does one build one hopes upon the future? May my experience of sight be like thus in the future. And it goes through sight of hearing, hear, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Basically, may my, may my experience be like this in the future. And then one sets one heart's on obtaining what one has not yet obtained. Because one sets one's heart, thus one delights in that. When one delights in that, one builds hope upon the future. So it's describing a setting of expectation. And in relationship to that expectation, creating a relationship of grasping, of when this happens, I will be happy. And we rest a sense of happiness upon that experience. When delight is used in this context, it's describing a gratification that involves grasping, that involves clinging. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Now, how would you not revive the past? Perhaps the word "revived" is important because it's it's giving it life. The fact that it's there is un- undeniable, but we don't have to breathe into it. Yes, oh, that was it. Oh, sorry. Do we have a second one of these? Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Didn't revive the past. <laughs> yeah, 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 You're really in the present. That's good. Okay. How else would you re- would you not revive the past? How else would you not revive the past? The past is undeniably there, but we don't need to breathe life into it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Good. 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 Good, yeah. Is there anything you would do or is there anything you would not do to not revive the past? Please, in the back. Simply paying attention to the present. If you're doing that fully, then you're not reviving the past. Okay, paying attention to the present. Okay. What else would you do or not do to not revive the past? Please. Yeah, we've got to move these mics faster. <laughs> um, with certain situations, you can actually come to a resolution or have an agreement with someone, that maybe a disagreement in the past, that you're over it, that you forgive each other. So you actually close a chapter from the past that still needs to be resolved. Oh, okay. So you really come to some kind of emotional maturity regarding the, the past or past occurrences so that they don't linger. Okay, great. And over here. By accepting and letting go Thanks. Yes, so we accept and we let go um, of any event that can happen in the past. Yes. Now, you want to know what the Buddha said? He said... We don't. when thoughts of the past arise, we don't delight in them. Really simple. Really simple. The problem was creating, a, when thoughts of the past arose, that we delighted in them, that we looked to them for our happiness. And so in that, we were investing life or breathing life into them. And he said, when thoughts of the past arise, we just don't delight in them. They just arise. They're thoughts of the past. It's so simple. What about on the future build my hopes? We talked about what that means to build our hopes upon the future. How would we not build our hopes upon the future? What would you do or not do? It seems like it's the same thing. It's the relationship I have with the thoughts that arise. It's not that they arise. So don't take delight in the thoughts of the future. Yes, 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 exactly. And the language of the Buddha is very much the same. He says not to, um, not to bind our minds to, with desire and lust to something that might happen in the future. Out of that we don't delight and out of that we are not um, uh, uh, resting our hopes upon the future. Thoughts of the future may still arise, but we don't relate to those thoughts with a binding experience of desire and lust. They're simply thoughts of the future that arise. It's as simple as that. It's not that we never have a thought about the past, and we never have a thought about the future. It's that our relationship to those thoughts of past and future are not distorted, By this bondage. So let me not revive the past, nor on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Now let's look at the next paragraph. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. So we dealt with two time frames already, right? We've dealt with the past, we've dealt with the future, both how we can relate to the past and the future in a way that causes suffering, and how we can relate to the past and future in a very clear and simple way. How are we going to relate to the present? That's what's so interesting about this next paragraph. The Buddha is describing how we might experience the present moment with wisdom. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Would somebody just rephrase that in contemporary language, what he's saying? Again, please. Um, practice, mindfulness. practice mindfulness. Okay, you came to the right place. <laughs> you came to it. Anybody else? Anybody else? That, could you rephrase, rephrase what he's saying? Pay close, attention. pay close attention. Okay, Play, pay close attention to anything in particular? Anything particular in the present moment? Remember, Buddha was good at particulars. What can you notice? What can you pay attention to? Our body. okay okay great exactly to the, thoughts. to the thoughts body thoughts what else can you notice what else can you pay attention to the fact that is impermanence change so you can see process you can see change you can see okay this is good this is good so we've got body we've got thoughts now of course you want to know that the classic, it's related to this, but Buddha has his lists. So we can pay attention to the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. That's one list. So it includes and comprises both body and mind or thoughts. The other sutta in this category takes that and describes the, the, the senses. So we have the experience of a form and the consciousness of it, so we have seeing, and then sound and the consciousness of it, so we have hearing, and then smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. So those are things that can be experienced. So it's encouraging us to look at bringing awareness to these states. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Okay, so now we know what the states are that we're looking at, but what does it mean to see with insight? What's the difference between seeing with insight and seeing with not insight? you like it or you dislike it. Okay, so you pay attention to your relationship to it. Yes, of, of liking, not liking, wanting, not wanting. You pay attention to the characteristics of it. You pay attention to the characteristics. Okay, great. And we had one characteristic mentioned of um, of impermanence and change. And what are the other characteristics that you might notice? Not self. Not self. And feeling tone. In the feeling tone. And what else might you notice? Richard. There's a little room for improvement. Yes. That's a nice, um, a nice phrase, um, perception of or uh, uh, aspect of our way of way of understanding dukkha. There's a little room for improvement. The unsatisfactoriness of things. So classically the feeling tone would fall in the category of the five aggregates and the three characteristics would be anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness. But all of these that were mentioned would be part of what was seen. And seeing it with wisdom. So instead with insight, let me see each presently arisen state, that means that from the perspective of, of recognizing the characteristics, we are perceiving our senses as changing, unsatisfactory, and empty experience. In the moment of contact, in the moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, in the moment of experiencing the body and the mind, we are experiencing those with insight. So the the perception of change is not something that happens as some kind of separate function. It's a description of wisdom that is experienced on contact with the mind and the body processes. So it's with wisdom that we see each presently arisen state. Smita. Um, I can see uh, how uh, you pay notice to uh, sensation or any experience and notice that it is impermanent, that it comes and it's there and then it passes away and you notice that it is inherently unsatisfactory, there is nothing per se, but how do you notice it with no self? You're going right in the direction the Buddha went, that's exciting. of perceiving anatta in this text is trick is, is, is pointed to by this term invincibly. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. When we can perceive the nature of things very, very clearly, what it says that we're not doing is we are not taking them as self. We do not regard things as self, as things possessed, as self-possessed of things, as things as in self, or self as in things. So it's a way of experiencing anything, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, with the absence of that self, self self-information. We still see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think but we're not adding that extra self-grasping experience. This is very significant because in the first two periods of time, we were looking at grasping um, to the past with delight and lust being bound to that experience and grasping to the future through expectation and hope. And sometimes we think we'll be okay if we just hang on to the present. But this sutta is saying, "Uh uh-uh, there's a problem here too. The problem isn't in thoughts of past, nor is it a problem of thoughts of future, nor is it of presently arisen states. But there is a problem. The problem is that grasping. And the grasping that so easily arises in relationship to presently arisen state is the I am hearing that sound. I am am feeling that sensation. That experience is mine. I know myself through this um, uh, thought. It's using in the moment that we're experiencing something in the present, it's using that to do this construction of self, of identification and possessiveness. So instead with insight, let me see each presently arisen state let me know that so we know the changing nature of things very, very clearly and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. The only time that we are unshakable and that we, when we, that we are invincible is when we are not in a brittle relationship to experience. Whenever we're holding on, we're tense and we're, there's a brittleness. We are, we are shakable. To be unshakable, we have to be with the nature of things, not grasping. Not grasping a certain concept of what the nature of things is, but simply abiding without grasping. Not doing this construction of I, me, and mine. Where's the mic? Would you read um, today and then start passing the mic around sentence by sentence? Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality. Can keep him and his hordes away. Do you agree so far? It's quite amazing, death can come at any time. Just, um, I, I was, uh, I was um, returning just today, I spent the last couple of weeks in New Mexico I'm teaching um, a couple of retreats there. And I just flew in this afternoon. And I hadn't been back to New Mexico, and I guess I went back last time in September. And so people were catching me up on on the various um, Sangha events, including two deaths of young people, very young people, under 50, 40s and 50s, 40s and 150. We never know when death will happen. The last time I saw these people, they were young and healthy and strong and working and going to classes and yoga and this and that. We never know. We absolutely never know. So today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. That does not need to be some kind of depressing thought. That is actually an inspiring thought. It can be a thought that motivates us, that sends us, gives us a sense of urgency, that lets us value each and every day. Remember the context of this sutta is having an excellent day, having a good day. And part of having a good day is knowing that we may be our last day. It may be our only day. We're not looking to the future for some fulfillment. We are actually experiencing things just as they are. And in that, there's a perfection. In that, there's a fulfillment. Not the fulfillment of desire being fulfilled, because desire can never be fulfilled. But there is a quality of fulfillment that comes through the absence of desire. Through non-grasping. Um, wherever the mic is, would you continue to read, please? But one who dwells thus ardently. Relentlessly by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. Mm. Lovely, lovely. Um, for those of you who w- wish to memorize it, change the pronouns to fit your pronoun. Um, because the, the purpose of these is to really inform our practice and to be useful to us. So if you're a woman, I would suggest changing it to she, as I did. And if you're a man, use he. Um, I, I really feel that it's quite fine to make those adjustments so that the, that's within the spirit of the purpose of the teachings. Um, and then when we reflect on it, then when we repeat it to ourselves, when we recollect it, we're really giving that teaching directly to ourselves. Would you change the pronoun for death as well? To what? It speaks of death and his words. Oh, um... <laughs> You can if you want. I understand it in this context because it, this is describing Mara. Mara as the personification in the texts of, of death or of temptation. So you can change it to it. You can change it to it if you prefer. He, I, I just saw it as this sort of, this, this sort of um, historic personality. Um, the, the reason I would change the pronouns isn't to neutralize gender in any way. It's so that when I recollect it, it touches. There's no, there's no barrier. Um, and if it doesn't alter the meaning, but just makes it as though that teaching is being given directly to me, then I think it's a really important thing to do. Um, it, but, you know, I don't go through and rewrite them. But if I'm going to memorize one, I'll memorize it so that it's most useful without changing the meaning. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage, has said, who has spent a single excellent night. Sometimes it's worth contemplating whether we undertook today in an excellent way. Were we present for it? Or did we miss today? Not to judge ourselves or to berate ourselves, but just to keep a sense of urgency and ardency and interest. He's not saying we have to like all go to the forest and meditate day and night, but were we present for our day today? Or did we spend a half of it on automatic pilot and the other half spaced out? (laughs) Or a good chunk of it thinking about the past and another chunk of it thinking about the future and a little chunk of it grasping at whatever happened to be in front of us. You know, really, was our day excellent? To make our days excellent, it's a way of orienting to our experience so that we live without grasping. If thoughts of the past arise, we experience them without grasping, without trying to squeeze an ounce more pleasure out of them. And when thoughts of the future arise, we experience those without trying to if only this will happen exactly this way, I will be happy. And when things occur in the present moment through any sensory experience we don't need to take a stand upon that. We can simply experience them as the flow of changing, of changing life. We can, with insight, see each presently arisen state. I'd like to just sit for a moment or two together and I'll read it just for your contemplation let me not revive the past nor on the future build my hopes for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep it and its ores away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage, has said, who has spent a single excellent night. May all beings experience an excellent day and night. May all beings know the nature of things. May all beings come to rest in the simplicity of things. May we live free of grasping, free of suffering, free of ignorance, in harmony and peace together.